Welcome to the Calvary St. George's Sermon Podcast, proclaiming the historic faith of Christ and Him crucified. These podcasts are recorded and produced by the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. For more information about our ministries, head to calvarystgeorges.org. It's really wonderful to be back at Calvary St. George today. Uh, My wife Margaret is with me. Um, Over time, we have become very good close friends with Jake and Molina, and it's wonderful to be back in their house and their church today and to be with all of you. Wonderful also to be here with the team of clergy and lay leaders who work with uh, Father Smith in uh, 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 carrying out the ministries of this parish and serving the people of this church and this community. I particularly need to single out someone that I am learning just this morning that you call MJ, but who I know as Molly Jane. And yesterday I had the great privilege of ordaining her to the priesthood. This, this was the culmination of a journey and discernment over several years. I remember this morning when Molly first came into my office and we began talking about her aspirations for holy orders. Um, I guess it wasn't that long ago, but it feels like a long journey and a long discernment. And yesterday was an absolute joy on my part uh, to receive her at the cathedral, to lay hands on her, and to say the prayers by which we trust and are assured that the Holy Spirit conveys upon her the grace of a true priesthood. So it's wonderful to be with uh, Janet and and, uh, Jake and everyone here and Molly Jane or MJ as you would choose uh, in this Eucharist. I confess I had some anxiety um, uh, early in the week when I realized that one of the important customs of the church is that when a person is ordained priest, the next day back in their parish, they have the opportunity to celebrate their first Eucharist. And I thought, well, but I'm going there this Sunday. How will that happen? And was glad to know that other people had thought of that before I did. And that this morning at nine, uh, Molly Jane celebrated her first Eucharist as a priest. So you're in the club. You you made it all the way. I will add this, and I don't want to embarrass her, but uh, Canon Charles Simmons is the canon for ministry and, and guides that discernment process. And when I first met Molly Jane, and, uh, and we talked about her later, I said, she's really good. I wish I had a hundred of her. And uh, so you all are blessed at Calvary St. George uh, to frankly take someone who was already among you as a lay leader, raise her up, and then have her come back among you as, as a priest. It's, it's all good. It's all good news. This church is a uh, beacon in the city and diocese of New York. This is a church of extraordinary vitality. Um, I, uh, I will say that I believe that uh, while that vitality springs from the devotion of many, many lay leaders and ordained leaders here, it would not be entirely possible if it were not for your rector that Jake Smith, as as the rector of this church, has brought a quality of leadership, a calling of the Holy Spirit, a conducting of ministries, a preaching of the word, and the gathering of community that has brought Calvary St. George Church. And I remember this church when he came, and I know it now. And he has brought, by the grace of the Spirit, growth upon growth, 
and vitality upon vitality to this place and has made this church a beacon of Christian ministry and proclamation in the diocese and city of New York. So, I already told you that he's a friend of mine. Now he has to buy me a sandwich. But, uh, but uh, it's, uh, I, I could not be prouder of what he's done in this place. He's a true Christian man, a great priest, and a good leader. So our gospel reading today is uh, from the Gospel of Luke, and it tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Very, very familiar story to us. And it is a story... Uh, which is harsh and hopeful at the same time. A story which tells very significant moral truths and holds out warning, holds out warning, if not threat, to people who live in this world in a world of injustice and economic separation. Jesus tells the story of the rich man who lived in a great house, who feasted at his table, who enjoyed all the good things of life, while at his gate, Lazarus, the poor man, sat beside the gate on the ground, had nothing, the dogs licked his swords, and the rich man would come and go, passing Lazarus by as he came in and out of his gate and his home. The story continues to talk about the time when Lazarus finally died of exposure, privation, starvation, one of the consequences of earthly poverty, and went to heaven and to the bosom of Abraham. Eventually, the rich man died and went to the other place, and he dwelled there in the flames, and he could see across a great chasm to heaven, where Lazarus was living in plenty. And he asked, can you send Lazarus to me to dip his finger in the water and to cool my tongue? And was told, nobody can go from your side to this side, and nobody can go the other way either. And this is the story of of the rich man and Lazarus. And it's one of the most poignant and and familiar stories that we have from the Gospels. Now, one thing I want to make clear about this story is that it is not a literally true story. Jesus is not reporting on an event that took place the week earlier in Bethany or in Jerusalem. This is a parable. It is a story that Jesus made up in order to illustrate and carry out truths of his Gospel to his hearers. So, don't look at this story and say, this is exactly how heaven and hell work. This is what that's like, because that's not the point of this story. The point of this story, and the point of including the post or the afterlife experiences of Lazarus and the rich man, is not to talk about their individual experiences or relationship in their judgment and the days to come. It is to say, that the decisions that we make in this life, the way we live with one another in this world, the choices we make, and the way that the choices we make land on the lives of other people, the way 
those decisions that we make affect the lives of others has consequence not only in the moment, but carry eternal importance and consequence. The breakdown of the economic, financial, sociological equality among people in the world, the failure of people to live one another in brotherhood and sisterhood and equality before history and before God, is a circumstance which has eternal consequences and ramifications. And the story of the rich man in Hades and Lazarus in Abraham's bosom is the way that Jesus tells this story, this metaphor, to illustrate that and to talk about the significance and importance of the decisions that you and I and the rich man, and for that matter, Lazarus, make every day in the course of our living. The significant thing in this story, or the pivot on which it turns, is what we might call the great reversal. That that which was the customary and accepted circumstance in this life is overturned in the judgment of God's economy. That the inequalities which we live with all the time in Jerusalem and in New York City the inequalities with which we live all the time in every place that elevate some people and consign others to the lowest place is a circumstance which Jesus talks about again and again and again. And that this circumstance and the way that we live in this circumstance has eternal consequences and ramifications. So this is a story which is told by Luke of Jesus. Every time I read anything in the Gospel of Luke, any time I read anything that Jesus said or did as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, I always look at it through the lens of the Magnificat of the Blessed Virgin Mary. At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke tells the story of the angel coming to Mary and announcing to her that she will bear a child, the child of the Most High. And Mary's not quite sure what to do with that information, but ultimately accepts it as truth. And then after the departure of the angel, Mary goes up into the hill country to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And when she comes to Elizabeth's house, she is met at the door, and rather than exclaiming, Elizabeth, I'm going to have a baby. Celebrate with me this good news. I'm going to have a baby. What she says is, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked with favor on his handmaid. And she continues, and what she says is, now are the rich cast down from their thrones and the poor are lifted up. Now are the rich sent away with empty bellies and the poor are fed with good things. And in a series of couplets, Mary describes the great reversal. When those who sit in seats of power and enjoy all of the good resources of this world 
and celebrate their wealth and comforts are cast down and deprived so that those who have little or nothing can be lifted up to their place. This was what Mary said in response to the announcement that she would bear the child who would be called holy. Only a poor girl could sing the Magnificat. Only one who had felt in her own life and being all of the privations of earthly poverty could sing that song. Mary does not say, the poor will be lifted up and the rich and the poor will be happy together. Mary called for something else. It was not enough that God might lift up the poor unless he also cast down the rich. The song of the poor girl looks not only for the restoration of the poor, but she cries out for the great getting even, that the rich must suffer as the poor did. Now, this is the harsh language of Mary in the Magnificat. And I read that as an overture to the entire Gospel of Luke, that this radical, harsh song that celebrates God's great reversal in sending his child into the world to live as a poor boy and then grow up to be one who has no place to lay his head is Mary's exclamation of celebration as one who has long looked for the redemption of Israel and now sees it coming and who has had the guts and glory to believe all of the prophets. So that now when she gets this message, this announcement, she sees God is going to bring about his justice on the world. And that's going to be hard news for those who have gladly walked by Lazarus on their way through the gates. So when I come to the Gospel of Luke, I read all of it through the lens of Mary's Magnificat because she is given the first word. And in those verses and in that song, she sets out a particular vision of godly redemption for this world. And now in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, Jesus is telling a story which is the perfect illustration of that which Mary hoped for, longed for, and celebrated back at the beginning, back in the opening verses of this gospel. This is the great reversal. Have no pity for the rich man. He feasted sumptuously, lived richly in this world, and Mary said he will be cast down and sent away with an empty belly, and Lazarus, who had nothing, will be lifted up. This parable is nothing new. This is Jesus, who is a child of his mother, telling a story, making a teaching, which is in absolute conformity with Mary's own heart and with the song that she sang when she learned that she would bear the child. So the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the song of Mary, describe the world in which we live, in which the resources of this world, the opportunities of this world, the blessings of this world are unequally given that the riches of this world are not shared, 
that the opportunities in this world are not equally available to all, that the possibilities of an enriched and full life in this world are granted to some and denied to others. And so when we look at the story of Lazarus and the rich man, or if we listen to Mary's uh, Magnificat, we are hearing words and phrases, metaphors, that describe what it means for us to live in a world of change and chance, a world of brokenness, a world in which some people are just fine and other people suffer the privations of a world in which its resources and its wealth are not shared. How do we live in this world? It is both too hard and too easy to read the story of the rich man and Lazarus and say, well, this all gets solved if we just give away everything that we have. There must be, there is, a deeper and more complicated way to live into the injustice and inequalities of the world. There is a way to come to wisdom and understanding and peace in a world in which these divisions and these inequalities are commonplace. And we find it in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, today, in this church, we are doing almost everything that we can do in church. We have baptisms. We have confirmations. We are receiving people into the Episcopal Church. And we have one who is formally reaffirming his baptismal vows. And then all the rest of us are together going to reaffirm our own baptismal vows. Today's service is all about baptism. It is about the vows and promises which were made by us or on our behalf by others when we came into the Christian life. Vows and promises that then at the time of confirmation were renewed, a time when we took responsibility for the vows and promises of baptism in our own lives so that we might be held accountable to them, accountable for them. Now, the promises and vows of baptism are as harsh as the Magnificat. Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Do you renounce all the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? Do you renounce all the sinful desires that draw you from the love of God? We are called in baptism to renounce the evil in this world that besets us from without, but also the evil within us that rises up and pours out of us into the world. Then, in the same promises, we are invited to turn and affirm Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and follow him in the gospel life. Now, a lot of people have looked at the baptismal vows and said, do you renounce Satan? Really, Satan? And there is a great sentiment in the church and in the world that Satan is a more mythological creature, one that does not fully represent what it means to live in a world in which evil is a reality, except to tell that in the language of metaphor and myth. I just learned recently that the great anthropologist Margaret Mead, who was a consultant in the creation of our current Book of Common Prayer, 
when they were writing the baptismal liturgy and they wrote, Do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? Some of the bishops on that committee said, Oh, come on. No one really believes in Satan. And Margaret Mead wrapped the floor with her cane and said, You bishops may not believe in Satan, but we anthropologists do. Now, the important thing in those vows, the thing that goes to the heart of what we're doing today, is that whether or not you believe in Satan or the devil of hell, I'm not concerned. But you must believe in the reality of good and the reality of evil. And that evil is not simply when good people fail to do good. Evil is a corrosive, active force in the world looking to undermine every one of us. Call that force Satan. Call that force the devil. Call that force evil. But it is the same. It is a force that is at war with each of us. This is what Mary was trying to say, needed to say, in her great song of thanksgiving. This is what Jesus is saying in this parable today. That there are forces in this world to which we can bind ourselves, which will lift us up, enlarge us, fill us with glory, and bring us to the Father. And there are forces that will take us in the other direction. And there are choices that we must make in this world in the face of that. Today, we will all reaffirm vows and promises in which we reaffirm that we have in our life renounced the evil forces in this world, whether those forces are at war in the Ukraine, whether those forces are active on the border between the United States and Mexico, consigning people to imprisonment and poverty and exile, whether those forces are active in our cities, separating white from black, from Mexican, from Asian, wherever these forces of evil are, their purpose, their function, is to separate people from one another and lift up some people above other people, consign some to lives of comfort and wealth and others to poverty and deprivation. This is how evil works in the world. It is what Mary talked about, it's what Jesus is talking about today. And what we learn in our baptism is that the first thing that we must do as Christian people is renounce that which looks to separate me from you and you from the person in the next pew and the person in the next pew from the person on the sidewalk and denies us the chance to create that larger community of fellowship and communion, which is God's purpose and God's intention for every one of us, that makes the world one. As Jesus said in another place, I only came for one reason, that all may be one, as the Father and I are one. Today in this church, we're making promises. And if those promises mean anything, it is that we hold up that vision of one humanity under God in Christ, empowered and inspired by a spirit that falls upon us in baptism in confirmation and in our Christian lives and raises us before God and before the world and creates that community of character which is God's hope and intention and Jesus' purpose here on earth. The story of the rich man and Lazarus is just that story. 
It's just that story. The Song of Mary is an exultant, exultant expression of the hope that God will come and undo all that which separates us from one another and turns us into a community that is broken by division and lack of understanding, ignorance of one another, and a separated and divided humanity. Mary's Magnificat is at the heart of Jesus' gospel. Jesus' gospel is at the heart of lives lived in our cities, our towns, our country, and our world as we are called by that gospel to rise to a different and better way of living out and expressing our lives with one another before God. The rich man was unable to do that with Lazarus, whom he passed by every day at the gate. And I confess that I have too often been unable to do that when I pass the guy on the sidewalk on my way to church. So we are called to a brave and faithful, glorious and adventurous life in Christ that binds us together as a human family in one great and glorious vision and dream of God. This is Jesus' purpose. It is his love. It is his life. And the story that we've heard today is Jesus talking about a way of being and a way of not being in this world and calling us to our better and holier selves. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast produced and recorded at the Parish of Calvary St. George's in the city of New York. If you feel led to support the continuing ministry of our parish, we would really appreciate it. You can make a one-time or recurring gift by going to calvarystgeorges.org give. Thank you for your support.